You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Amen. It's good to worship this morning, to worship the Lord, and uh, good to be together. I'm also very grateful for what Lyle shared earlier as we think about uh, the trajectory of our fellowship and how God is directing. There's more uh, that Lyle could have shared about some of the uh, inner workings of the board and some of the wrestling through in prayer that we've been doing and also some of the answers to prayer that we've received. We're looking, as he said, for these indicators along the way that remind us that God is indeed directing our path. And really, the McGillivray property, just like, just like so much in all of life perhaps, is it's all about faith. God is building a faith people on, on planet Earth. And he wants to invite us into a deeper, deeper trusting in him. And so what we're seeing as we continue on is that, indeed, it's as much about the journey as the destination. It's as much about uh, what God's doing in us as what he will do through us when we uh, one day are worshiping on a, in a building over there. But, uh, so we rejoice in that, and I ask you as a people of God to continue to pray that we will be alert and sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and, and the ways that, uh, that God is directing. Well, we're back in our Joshua series after uh, a couple of weeks of a break, and um, we're in Joshua chapter 9 this morning. But uh, the key word in Joshua is the word possession. Uh, God was leading his people into the possession of the land that they already owned for hundreds of years after God had made the promise on that ground to give that to Abraham. And so the ownership of Canaan was absolutely unconditional. They already owned the land. But the actual possession of it was very conditional upon them as the people of God going in, getting the enemies out of there, and possessing the land, living on it by faith. And uh, similarly, we who are followers of Jesus Christ are given life in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that every promise God ever made to his people is yes in Jesus Christ. In other words, what that means is that there is nothing more that God has for you. He has already given you everything he's going to give you. Some of you don't believe me. And you're thinking, well, if that's it, I'm kind of hoping for more. You know, he's already given you everything. There's nothing that we receive ever from God that is not given in and through and because of His Son. And because we have received the Son of God through salvation, we have everything. We already have the promise of eternal life. We already have the forgiveness of sins. We already have the promised Holy Spirit. We already have every blessing that is in Jesus Christ. And this is exactly where so many people go wrong because they reason that if I have everything already and Jesus is you know, paid it all on the cross, then I should be right now enjoying it all. The fact is that that's, that's the confusion is that you have to go in and possess it all by faith. You have to walk on the land. You have to claim what is yours in Jesus Christ. God is not going to lay it upon you like you're some little bird in a nest that comes back with the mother and the worm and there you are. It's like joining a, a gym somewhere and, and never going to it and six months later confused as to why you're out of shape. 
Well, you've never made use of it. You might have ownership of the, of the membership, but you're not making use of it. And so we as Christians can get very confused in this. And so Paul says that uh, there's a fight to fight, and it's the fight of the faith. And I love the way he continues on in 1 Timothy 6.12. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of. That's the word, isn't it? Take hold of it. It's not going to take hold of you. Take hold of it. If you're living at this, this uh, level of spiritual maturity and you're still there after 10 years, the altitude of your spiritual maturity has a lot to do with the position of your experience in Jesus Christ. Are you drawing near? So obviously if there's a fight, there's an enemy, isn't there? The Canaanites were the enemies of Israel as they entered the land of Canaan, the promised land. And just as there were several enemies in the land of Canaan, so also there are many enemies in our journey toward the fullness of experiencing all the promises that we have in Jesus Christ. We cannot reason that just because Jesus paid it all, that now we should not have any struggles, any problems, etc., each year, pastoral staff of our church are involved in preparing several young couples for marriage. Some of them are not so young sometimes. And as we prepare them, one of the subjects that we cover is expectations. It's huge, just what a couple go into marriage with expecting. And if you go into marriage expecting that it's going to be a walk in the park, you're going to probably find yourself walking in the park a lot more than you think. You see, expectations determine a lot of what we... When, when, when we go through these counseling sessions with couples, you see, everything that has to do with marriage so far is all theoretical. And as Israel was on the banks of the Jordan and entering the Canaan, everything about that new life in that new land and conquering that enemy was all theoretical. And they came into that experience with all these ideas of what it might be, expectations, but they were going to be very awakened soon as we've been seeing. You see, you think you came to Jesus Christ one day, and some of you, it's recently, some of it's a long time ago, but you think that you came to Jesus Christ without having had any indoctrination. Uh-uh, you're wrong. You came to Jesus Christ with all kinds of indoctrination. The Bible says that all of us who came to Christ were darkened in our understanding. We, we came in, into the life of the Lord with a messed up mind and we started to walk out the Christian life with wrong expectations, wrong theology, wrong thinking. And, and the Bible and the scriptures and the, the walking with the Lord renews our mind to remind us of what it is that God has for us. How was Israel going to enter the land? How were they going to deploy themselves? How were they going to oust the enemy? How were they going to fight against fortified cities? How were they going to take possession of what God had already promised them? Well, we, as, as we begin uh, our study this day, we see that they made a lot of mistakes, didn't they? We identify with those because we make a lot of mistakes in our journey with Jesus. Take your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 9. And today we'll look at yet another mistake that Israel made in their possession of the land of Canaan. Joshua chapter 9, and we're going to begin with verse 1 and read a, a section of chapter 9. Would you stand with me as we get ready? 
Chapter 9 of Joshua, beginning with verse 1. Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the great sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet, worn-out clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. And then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country and make a treaty with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you and where do you come from? They answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of of him, all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take provision in, in your journey, go and meet them, and say to them, We are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now you see it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins that were filled were new, but now you see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but they did not inquire of the Lord. And then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites... The Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. And so the Israelites set out, and on the third day came to the cities of Gibeon, uh, Kephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them, because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that the wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. And so the leader's promise to them was kept. May God bless his word. You may be seated. In chapters 9 and 10, we begin what is called the southern campaign of the conquest of Canaan. Up until now, what has happened in the battle has been a driving of a wedge into the middle of the geography of the Canaanite land. A driving of a wedge. Basically, God's plan through Joshua was to divide and conquer. And so a wedge has essentially got the high ground under control, cut off some trade routes, and made it a little more difficult for kings to make alliances with each other. And after reading chapter 8 that we did a couple weeks ago, you would think that mentally and spiritually Israel is ready to move ahead in victory and in conquest. You remember that scripture in chapter 7 and 8, how uh, one of the Israelites had stolen one of the devoted things to the Lord in Jericho, and the severity of God comes upon Israel because uh, when they go to the next city to fight, 36 Israelites die. Joshua goes on his face before the Lord and asks what's wrong, and God says, well, there's sin in the camp. You can't just live the way you want, disobey me, and expect me to bless you. 
And so when they find the family, they have to deal with the family of Achan. And once that is dealt with, then they move on and they are actually victorious at the city of Ai. But as soon as that victory, that second victory is done, God moves Joshua and Israel from that valley, the Jordan Valley, where the city of Ai is, and all the way 30 miles to Shechem, which is between the Mount Ebal and Mount uh, Gerizim. And uh, this is a historic place. And God moves them there, and you can read about it at the end of chapter 8, verses 32 and so on. Um, and in that place, God calls him to build an altar. Now, we need to understand this is a significant thing that is happening in verses 30 and following in chapter 8. When, when he asks him to build an altar, this is the first altar to the living God, Yahweh, that has been built on that land in about 600 years. The last one that built an altar in the land of Canaan was Jacob, in that very place about 600 years earlier. And prior to him, Abraham, when he first landed at the place and God had promised that land to his seed, that was also where Abraham built an altar. Now, we don't maybe understand the spiritual significance of altars in the Old Testament, but these stone, uh, these stone pieces that were built that had wood underneath with fire where animals were put on top and sacrificed, these altars were the places of worship, and they, they have a, a very important significance in all of the Old Testament, wherever an altar was built. One author says it this way, that they are fixed points in the theological geography of the land. Think about that for a moment. Altars in the Old Testament are fixed points in the theological geography of the land. In other words, it's stating something, that altar that God has people build in the Old Testament was stating something about God and His people at that space and time. And in this case, of course, it is incredibly significant because it is the first altar built in that dark territory of the land of Canaan where godlessness had been allowed to rule and the sin of the Amorites had reached its full measure after hundreds of years. And God was now entering. And so in this, in this very place, in this pagan land, for the first time in hundreds of years, God is being worshipped. It's an incredible moment. Do you know something? Before we rush on, we need to pause for a moment. We don't build physical altars anymore out of stone. But friends, we are invited by God to go into dark places, to go into godless places and build spiritual altars and claim something that had been God's for God again. And you might... You might want to apply that to a family that you know that once worshipped the Lord, once attended a church or something. You might want to apply it to a marriage that you're looking at falling apart. You might want to apply it to the educational institutions of our world. You might want to apply it to our city and its government or our country. But friends, wherever you see that God was once acknowledged, the Lordship of Jesus Christ was, was firm, the Word of God was the functionality of the place, and now is no longer, we have the privilege as the priesthood of all believers to go into those places and set up an altar and say, God, no more. Let Jesus Christ be Lord in this place. I think of parents. I've talked to many parents over the years who raised their children to know the Lord. 
And I, I sit with them in, in tears. They share with me how their children are, are no longer walking with the Lord. And I say, oh God, let these parents build an altar. Let them, let them claim again and reclaim again in those dark places their children for Jesus Christ. So this is a significant time in Israel's history. As they enter the land, as they're about to proceed, God takes a time out. They renew the covenant there. What does it say that they do? Well, after they build the altar, we see that, that they, they offer burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Now, a burnt offering was what was happening when an animal was put on the top of that altar and the flames from the fire absolutely consumed the entire carcass. And the Bible says that that was, in God's nostrils, a pleasing aroma. Whereas a fellowship offering was the kind of offering where they took an animal and they placed it on the altar and only parts of the animal were placed there. The rest of it was cooked and it was shared like a communal meal together by the worshipers. Of course, we're, we're automatically thinking about the communion meal that we share as we think about the sacrifice of Jesus that was given for our sins. And so they build the altar, they offer the sacrifice, and then God says, I want you to copy out the law of Moses. We think that they were chiseling away on rocks, but it actually, in the Deuteronomy, we see that it was to be done with plaster. There was some kind of plaster they used. And then once the law of Moses is done, then, then it says to Joshua, God says, read the law of Moses. Chapter 8, 32 to 35. And so the, the scenario is very interesting because here is Mount Gerizim and here is Mount Ebal. And a, according to what we, we are told is that at the peak of both of those mountains, it's about a mile and a half across. But at the base of the mountains, it's only about 500 meters. And so God has the uh, 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 tribes assemble. Six tribes are assembled at the base of one mountain. Six tribes at the base of the other mountain. The priests and Joshua are up on the mountains and they're, they're reading the law of Moses. We're told that even today in Israel, this is like a, a natural amphitheater. And so there they read the law of Moses. They reaffirm the covenant. They say, yes, this is the first time that God's people have read the law of Moses since Moses died. And so they reaffirm the covenant. And what goes through our minds naturally is, boy, they must be spiritually ready to go now. <laughs> you know, all pumped up. But then we open up chapter 9 and we come across some of the problems that they faced. Let's take a look at this. Chapter 9 begins with an alliance of Canaanite kings that hear about the conquest of Israel. And in verse 2 it says, they come together to make war against Joshua and Israel. You know, there's nothing like an alliance that is formed based on the philosophy of being against something. You understand what I'm saying? The philosophy of being against something is a very fragile alliance, okay? It's kind of like you're playing Risk or you're playing Settlers of Catan and somebody is really winning and the other players form an alliance against the winner, right? How many have done that before? And you know that that's a very weak alliance because as soon as you become the threat, 
whoever you form an alliance with is going to turn on you, and you're, the, you're the, on the chopping block. That's what we see happening here. You see, these kings in the, in the Canaanite country really didn't have that much to do with each other sometimes. They were of different tribal peoples. But because of this huge, vast people that had crossed the Jordan and were now coming into their land, they formed an alliance. What would unite planet Earth, friends? If another planet attacks us, that's what will unite planet Earth. I don't see it happening before that. And so this alliance is formed, and the only reason that verses 1 and 2 are there is because the author wants to signal to us, the reader, that one of those kings, the king of the Hivites, has a tribe under his kingdom called, anybody with me? The Gibeonites. The Gibeonites are Hivites. Verse 7 of chapter 9 says that. And so you see, what we have happening here is that all of these kings are making an alliance against Israel, but one tribe goes rogue. And says, we're not going to fall. We're not going to be one more statistic. We're not going to line up for the slaughter. And so what do they do? Well, we read about what they did. They decided that their attack was going to be through deception. And so they put all these things together. They, They make it look like they've come from a long distance and so on. And they come against God's people in that form. We could see that in, in many ways the Gibeonites are an example of Satan, of the deception of our enemy spiritually. One author draws a comparison, in fact, between the first three enemies of Canaan in Canaan, uh, the Jericho eye and the Gibeonites being like the world, the flesh, and the devil. And uh, regardless of what you think of that comparison, the fact is that Satan is a deceiver. He will seek to trick you trying to deceive you. But what we read about the Gibeonites and what they did to Israel was only possible because of what Israel allowed the Gibeonites to do to Israel. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, the fact that they were trying to deceive them is one thing, but why were they successful is the question we have to ask. And the key is found in verse 14, which really is a key to this whole passage. It says the men of Israel sampled their provisions but did not inquire of the Lord. How pertinent that verse is for all time. You and I operate on a certain level of sensory perception, human judgment, but we don't inquire of the Lord. If you're in the habit of not inquiring of the Lord about whatever it is that has to do with you, I can guarantee you, I can promise you, in fact, you will be deceived. The enemy will bring you down in some area, and he will deceive you because you are not made to live this Christian life in your own wisdom, in your own flesh, in your own strength. And so always easier to notice the deceptions that are happening to someone else, but if you're not inquiring of the Lord yourself on a regular basis, you will be deceived. Just a matter of time. Now in Deuteronomy 7, we read in the scriptures that God did not want Israel to form alliances with any of the Canaanite peoples. 
for fear of being influenced by them. But in this case, Joshua assumes that this people are from a far-off country. They're not from the land of Canaan. Again, it's hard for us to understand why he would not inquire further. I mean, when we read in verse 6 and 9 of this passage, it says, from a distant country. Where are you from? Or from a distant country. I can't get over that. What's the name of the country? (laughs) You know, I mean, Joshua's a well-traveled man. He's just spent 40 years running around the wilderness. And he could have said to him, you know, I've kind of been around a bit, you know, got my air miles to prove it. What's the name of your country? It doesn't ask. Because he's duped by this idea that, oh, look at those sandals, and look at that bread, and look at that wine. You must come a long way. Come on in, have something to eat. Didn't inquire of the Lord. And so we might say, well, who cares? Uh, But God cared, and God was watching how his people were responding. And in this passage of Scripture, the way that we see it unfold is that they make an alliance and they make a treaty, but they don't just make a treaty, they actually ratify it with an oath. They swear by somebody, someone, something higher than themselves. Now in Scripture you need to understand that when, when the spoken word was given, it was like promise. The word sp- the word for speak and the word for promise are actually translated in our English translations as from the same Hebrew word. Because your word was your word was, was your word. But in order to guarantee that your word was your word was your word, you would ratify your word with a higher authority. Maybe the tribal leader, maybe the king. But in this case, they ratify it by an oath in the name of the living God of Israel. And so as you can see, when we might want to say, well, who cares? They deceived you, just forget your word. But that wasn't the way it worked. And so God God would not honor that. And so the leaders, instead of making two mistakes, decide they're going to live with the consequences of this error. And they make the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the house of the Lord. So these, these, are, these passages full of lessons. We, we can't unpack them now. Maybe in your life group or in your home, in your pi- private study, you can look at more. But certainly one of the dangers is, is the, the danger of forming alliances, right? Uh, the, the danger of forming agreements or partnerships or alliances without inquiring of the Lord. It would speak into the idea of a, a non-Christian marrying a Christian, for example, It would speak into the idea of a business partner entering into a relationship with a person that don't have the same ideas and goals and values. It would enter into ministry partnerships that we as a church might enter into. We need to inquire of the Lord and be wise because some of the decisions that we make have long-term consequences. Alan Redpath says that this passage is a classic illustration of the subtlety of the enemy, but thank heaven it's also an example of the sovereignty of God who overrules our mistakes and turns the curses into blessings. Well, how did he do that? Well, in this case, we see that these Gibeonites that they're duped into making alliance with become woodcutters and water carriers, become servants. It alleviates some of the burden of the work for Israel. But, you know, I want to I take another look at, at this for a moment with you. And I want to argue for a moment that maybe, maybe the whole book of Joshua is a book of mistakes. 
Maybe the whole beginning and, and all the way through is a real commentary on the, the mistakes that God's people make and the incredible forbearance of God to overrule and bring blessing because he's a covenant God. I mean, let's begin with, let's begin with the two spies who are found in a prostitute's home. I know that we've reinterpreted that and we've said, oh, no, but they were, they were directed by God there. We don't know that. We don't know why they were in Rahab's house. Really. God turned it around and used it for good. And why was it that Achan stole some of the devoted things? And why was it that Joshua, in the first battle, having received such instruction about Jericho, didn't even talk to God about the second city, just went off half-cocked? And lost the battle. And why is it that, that they didn't even inquire of the Lord when the Gibeonites come along with their story? I don't know about you, but I see all kinds of mistakes in Joshua. And I see this incredible, loving Father God who continually forbears with his people. I can relate to that. That's, that's me. I can relate to that, that, that I make mistakes, and sometimes I don't have to bear all the consequences of my mistakes. Sometimes God, in his mercy, turns it into a blessing, unworthy as we are. Do you know what's fascinating to trace the Gibeonite history? Let me quickly do that with you, just for a moment. What becomes of the Gibeonites? This community of unbelieving Gentile peoples that is absorbed into the community of Israel. Well, first of all, we know that they work closely with the Levite priestly tribe of Aaron, and the city of Gibeon is actually given to Aaron as the inheritance of his people. And they work so closely because they're the water carriers for all the ceremonial washings and purifications. They're the wood carriers and cutters for all of the altars that are burning and sacrificing animals. So they worked, these Gibeonites worked closely with the priests and they learned about God and they learned about the worship of the true God. And so over time we get the feeling that they really, though we don't know from the beginning whether they had any belief in God, we get the feeling as though they did over time. Gibeon was one of the cities given to the priestly line of Aaron about 400 years later. David puts the tabernacle in Gibeon. One of David's bodyguards, fighting men, is a Gibeonite, it says in Scripture. About 500 years before the time of Christ, during the time of Zerubbabel, when the genealogies are being made so that the people of Jerusalem could return from exile in Babylon and go back to Jerusalem, guess whose genealogy is right alongside of Israel and all their tribes? The Gibeonites. And when they get there and Nehemiah is organizing them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, guess who has a portion of the wall and the gates to, to rebuild? The Gibeonites. So what are we saying? We're saying that hundreds of years after Joshua and the mistake that Joshua made, there is that people among Israel, part of the community of faith, what an incredible message that is for me. I just wonder that as, as the Gibeonites were returning from Babylon to Jerusalem, as they were working on their portion of the wall with Nehemiah, as they were in the temple and helping with the wood and the water and so on, I wonder if, how many times they just felt, 
how unworthy we are. We're not the seed of Abraham. We don't deserve to be here. Our forefathers deceived in order to be here. How unworthy we are. And yet how welcome God has made us. Friends, when we gather around this table right now, that's the way every one of us should approach it. How, how unworthy we are to be at this table. And yet how welcome we are. And why is that? Because you see, a covenant was made. And the covenant was ratified by the highest name. The name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess. He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By that name, God's not going to ever change his mind about you. So come to the table this morning, not because you're worthy, but because you're welcome. Kevin, would you come? Deacons, would you come? Let's prepare for the Lord's Supper. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder at Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Sin and despair like the sea weaves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold points to the refuge the mighty cross grace grace god's grace grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace grace god's grace grace that is greater than all our sin Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you may be today. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace grace god's grace grace that is greater than all our sin marvelous infinite matchless grace freely bestowed on all who you that are longing to see his face will you this moment his grace receive 
Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. 